Being the Worst, Episode 31, recorded Wednesday, June 26th, 2013. From beingtheworst.com, it's the Being the Worst podcast, audio apprenticeships for the aspiring software craftsman, with your hosts, Carrie Street and Renat Abdulid. In this episode, Carrie and Renat choose the event storage to use for their project. They're using Windows Azure, so should they stick with LOCAD CQRS event storage or switch to Event Store from Event Store LLP? They discuss some of the pros and cons of their options, review some scaling approaches, and guess at what a transition may look like. And now, here are Carrie and Renat. All right, Renat, it's uh, been a little while since we had a conversation. We were going to meet last week, but then uh, your throat didn't want to cooperate with you. And uh, I hope you're feeling better, and uh, we'll get back into the swing of things here. You had your wedding reception and all that stuff, and I hope that all went well for you. Yeah, it was really nice and went extremely well. So that's great stuff for everyone out there. We're going to start getting back into the swing of things and try to crank some of the stuff out. So. Well, we're definitely we're going to give it a try. <laughs> yeah, so we're definitely, we think things are settling into normal. We're going to go and, and uh, where we left off last time was uh, we started talking about getting into maybe some of the more practical aspects of where we wanted to go with the GTD project and even just the aggregates with event sourcing approach in general. And one of those pieces of the infrastructure that sort of we were faced with was, do we start diving deeper into the existing implementation of the event storage that you have in the LOCAD CQRS project, or do we look at something else? And in this episode, we're going to get into that something else, which is Greg's event store and how you actually have been using it and how I've been starting to use it a little bit and why we might choose to use that instead of reinventing the wheel and trying to use the stuff you already have, right? Yep, sounds good. Cool. So you had a blog post on this topic. I think it was a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago. I don't remember the exact date, but it was it was specifically about Greg's event store and Windows Azure. So why don't you give us a little recap of what you were talking about in there so we can dive in. Okay. Just before we dive into this direction, mm-hmm. so the reason why uh, Greg's event store comes up in our podcast with regards to uh, getting things done project, on which we haven't been coding for a while. The reason being is that in this project, we're trying to bring only the code, only the concepts that make a lot of sense and that are more or less practical. Mm-hmm. So implementations of aggregates with event sourcing, it's something that is well established that has worked in production in multiple projects for multiple people. However, in order for these aggregates with event source to work, we need a backing implementation of an event store. And currently, if we were to go full steam ahead using a code from Lockheed Secure's open source project, then that would mean uh, using my half-baked sample event store, uh, which is good for small uh, and medium projects, kind of runs on file system and kind of runs on uh, Azure. Mm-hmm. However, it's like it's half-baked. There are known performance problems and performance issues. And basically, it doesn't handle a lot of interesting and worthy scenarios out of the box. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was I, uh, one of the reasons why I didn't want to do Greg's event store, like to use a full Greg's event store, was, well, first, it was like relatively large executable. Mm-hmm. Uh, like which is hard to bundle into the uh, open source project. The second reason being is like I didn't know how to run this uh, event store on Azure in single node mode. Mm-hmm. Like this event store, it comes actually uh, in multiple licenses. Currently, there are two major licenses. Uh, one license being single node free version, and the other one being cluster. So in single node free version, you get one server that writes to a file system, and then basically if the file system or server fails then the node is down and you can't write to the event store. Okay. So basically for a lot of people who have been working with a single SQL database, like with a single SQL server that is backed up somewhere, that's exactly the same scenario. <laughs> uh, if SQL server fails, you can't write to it and you're messed up. Although with event store, we're on a slightly better ground here, simply because if you crash SQL server in the middle of processing, potentially you might end up with some uh, disk damage. Mm-hmm. and that will be hard to fix or recover from. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Event Store, this is not uh, really possible because there are only a few bytes of mutable data that are stored on the disk. And these are just pointers. 
to a certain file locations. And all the rest of the data, it's uh, append only. Mm-hmm. So if something happens in the middle of processing, then an answer is completely crushed, for example, by a grandmother with a shotgun, <laughs> then when the next time when server starts, you'll just resume from last known good state. Right. Okay. And then there is a uh, clustered version for those uh, who want additional reliability. In this case, you start up multiple instances of event store with, mm-hmm. in, like, in a commercial version. And in this commercial version, they have additional code where nodes can communicate with each other and where nodes ensure that when you write something, then the data will be persisted to multiple machines. And only after you persisted data to multiple machines, to multiple disk drives, or maybe it will stay in memory but still replicate it to multiple machines, only then the cluster will confirm to you that the write has been committed. Okay. And they use a relatively complex, well, Actually, Paxos is a really complex thing. Uh, negotiation protocols to ensure that, for example, if one of the uh, servers in the cluster goes down or disappears, especially if it's a master, that the entire cluster will survive. And what they actually did is like to make sure that the data will stay in the cluster as long as at least half of the machines are alive. I see. That, and that's part of the Paxos stuff, right? Uh, Paxos is a really complicated algorithm used for negotiating. Hmm. Uh, like who is master and who is uh, like and making sure that every node in the cluster agrees that uh, that is the master. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, the funny part about the Paxos negotiation negotiation algorithm, negotiation protocol, I think, is that it's so complicated that very few people uh, were able to understand it. <laughs> so uh, researchers actually took a challenge of devising a negotiation algorithm which will be not only working as relatively as well as Paxos, but also will be understandable. And uh, there is actually a new algorithm called Raft, which is possible to be understood by mere mortals. And we can actually include uh, a link to that paper uh, in the, to their show notes. Is that Raft, like R-A-F-T? Yes, exactly. Okay. And so this event store, it uses a heavily file system. And it uses unmanaged memory, but it like does a lot of disk flashing, etc., etc., and one of the reasons why I, well, I kind of neglecting uh, use of Event Store in getting things done project uh, was because I wanted uh, this project to be capable of running on Azure, mm-hmm. like uh, all of our other systems are doing. Right. Uh, we're assuming that we're using free version, the free open source version. Right. Yeah, open open source version, which comes with one single node. Mm-hmm. And that's literally uh, just for people listening. That's literally you. You go to their website, you download that zip file, and there's a exe precompiled in there that you l- literally just double click and run. That's the version we're talking about. Yeah, yep. and you have one node running. Yep. And so, uh, if we were talking about single node installation on Windows Azure, it can uh, either be running on a virtual machine using local storage, like local hard drive, which is connected to that virtual machine, and it will be quite fast. Mm-hmm. Although not as fast as other, uh, it will not be as fast as the event store version that runs on your local desktop. Right now, just because um, I know you have quite a bit of experience with Azure, and, and Azure is sort of evolving all the time, they're announcing new changes. But I don't think this question has fundamentally changed. So when you're talking about you could use the file system on the VM, from what I recall from I think two years ago when I looked at it, it was. If you're running on a VM on one of their machines, it's not faking the local file system. You're talking about the hardware that's really in the rack that's on that same node. Well, or at least really close by. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, so uh, that's like uh, you can use local transient uh, data drive. Mm-hmm. And this means that this data drive, it will not be durable. It will not be guaranteed durable. Right. Simply because at some point, Windows uh, Azure Fabric Controller might decide that it's time to upgrade this uh, virtual machine to new hardware. So it will uh, shut down the virtual machine, and it will take the image and start it somewhere else. Oh, and by the way, this new machine, it will be located in a different data center, and it will not have access to the old disk drive. So until that happens, it's just basically normal .NET C-sharp code writing to, quote, the local C drive or whatever, and and working fairly quickly and getting pretty good performance. But you just never know when, when you're going to write to that disk if the stuff you put there before is now gone and the drive you're trying to write to is now gone. Absolutely. Okay. And actually, a lot of people were experiencing this failure when they uh, got this like new VM in the cloud when they installed the stuff, and this code was writing to disk D. 
mm-hmm. and like everything was happening happily. <laughs> and then at some morning when they wake up and all of a sudden their FTP server or their database are not working because all the data is gone. <laughs> and um, is there a, a difference in this story? Because I got a little confused with how that story changes or doesn't change if you're talking about their original launch of their platform as a service worker and web role stuff versus their newer infrastructure as a service stuff where you're actually spinning up an entire virtual machine. Are, are the stories different there? No, actually, the, well, the configuration route, like the user experience is different, but internally it's all the same. So if you choose either one, a worker role or a true virtual machine and install Windows Server 2012 yourself, the story about your local C or D drive just vanishing on you does not change. Okay, so basically, uh, once again, the machine on Windows Azure, it can run like uh, your virtual machine or it can run pre-configured operating system that hosts your code, and this code being worker role or web role. Mm-hmm. And this machine, it can have access either to like local transient drives which are used for caching, mm-hmm. but are not really durable. Or it can have access to cloud-mounted drives. Mm-hmm. Okay, and a cloud-mounted drive is a drive, like it's not a physical hard drive, it's emulated drive, where operating system believes that it's writing like to a disk C, for example, mm-hmm. but in fact, for a special driver, it writes to a lob file, or basically a file stored somewhere in Windows Azure. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's writing to an image of VHD, virtual hard drive, which is stored in Windows Azure. And since this VHD is stored as a blob in Windows Azure storage, it means two things. First, that every change is immediately replicated. It's replicated like to free uh, data centers. Second thing being, it's slow. It's much slower than writing to a local physical hard drive. Mm -hmm. So basically, we have two types of drives there. And when you install operating system on a virtual machine, this actual operating system, it will be installed on uh, disk C, which is a data drive mapped to blob storage. Mm-hmm. And the same virtual machine will actually usually have a disk D, which is transient drive, which can be used for data, for caching, but it's a real hard drive. The real local nearby hard drive. Yeah. Okay. So basically you can have uh, local uh, real nearby hard drives which are not reliable. Well, they will probably pr- uh, stick with you for uh, maybe a few weeks, but they'll, uh, they can disappear afterwards. And you can have real stuff that is much stored securely and really slow. So for our purposes in this conversation, we pretty much assume that any choice that we pick in the Azure cloud, we're going to be using storage backed by blobs, which has some good guarantees around reliability, but it has performance problems. Or at yes, least uh, at least it's not as performant as local disk. Performance problem might be a reach depending upon what you're actually trying to do. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, so uh, for the multi-node uh, installation of Event Store, actually uh, it's much easier because to get a decent performance because you don't need to store to the cloud storage. You can store to local transient drives. And if one of the uh, machines with the transient drive fails, then actually the cluster will replicate the data. And when it uh, comes up, comes back up in a different data center with a clean and fresh uh, like transient drive, this drive will be populated from other machines. Now, is there, like, I'm trying to imagine how that would actually work. And are you saying that if you have enough nodes... Like, would the event store be able to eventually get it onto blob storage slowly when it has more time to protect yourself? Because I guess, theoretically, I mean, it's probably highly unlikely if you have a lot of nodes that they all go into maintenance mode at the same time and you lose everything. Uh, so uh, if you have a multiple node version, mm-hmm. uh, you don't even need to write to the storage. Because, first of all, the data will be replicated between the machines. Second, in Windows Azure, you can configure something like fault domains where uh, Windows Azure will try as hard as possible to make sure that machines that are in different fault domains, that they don't go down, or maybe I think it's the same fault domain. Uh, Basically, you can tell Windows Azure to make sure that uh, you have, for example, two machines, and that when one machine is down, the other will stay up. Hmm. And it will go even that far that it will locate these machines in different data centers with different like data power sources with different infrastructures. Hmm. So if you have, for example, three machines allocated in different data centers, then it's highly unlikely that all three of them will go down or will have their data, like transient data drive done. Mm-hmm. I think I'm still, uh, I'm still paranoid, though. <laughs> I'd still be afraid that if something goes wrong with that controller, and I've never actually persisted my events to something that's not getting restarted and deleted. <laughs> 
uh, well, uh, so basically, that's actually like how, for example, Rick or Cassandra, I think. Well, Rick definitely. Uh, Cassandra, not sure. But all these are real-world databases, like which are clustered, and that's how they are storing data. They're storing data on uh, commodity hardware, which is really cheap, but uh, like can fail. And they just make ensure reliability at higher level. Hmm. They ensure that the data is always stored at multiple locations. And actually, if we look at Windows Azure storage, it stores the data on highly unreliable disks, but it makes sure that the data will uh, stay alive by replicating every write to Windows uh, Azure storage to free locations. I see. Okay, but uh, this, uh, like we were talking about, multi-node uh, commercial version, which is not applicable for our open source project. Right. And so for the open source project, uh, we have uh, two options of hosting event store in Windows Azure. It's either storing data on local hard drive, which will be relatively fast, but completely unreliable, mm-hmm. and then storing it on a virtual drive, which is pointing to Windows Azure storage, and it will be slow. Okay. And that's how I initially thought. Uh, although after some investigation, it's actually it's not that bad because Event Store was optimized for both SSDs and hard drives, which are relatively slow, and it does a few clever things underneath, like batch writing. So what you can do is uh, you can uh, create a virtual machine, create a data drive for it, like additional data drive, which is points to some blob in a Azure Blob storage, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you can tell the operating system to enable read caching that drive. Hmm. What read caching will do is it will create a background copy, like when you uh, first read, of this blob on a local hard drive. Which means that when, for example, event store starts up after a restart, it will not need to actually scan the entire VHD stored somewhere, which will be slow. It will have the exact copy of this data stored locally. I see. So it will be like uh, the local transient drive working as a cache. Although one will be writing, will be writing immediately to the Windows Azure storage. I see. So that local transient drive, that sounds like if that's something you can kind of rely on for a little while, that it's not vanishing like every two hours, it's more like weeks usually or what? Yeah. Okay. Yes. I see. Or maybe even months. Okay, so maybe even weeks or months. So while you have that local cache, and eventually it could go away, but there's going to be a decent amount of time where you have that local cache to keep things pretty speedy. Yes. All right, cool. So uh, I'd say the cache will be available for you for 99.9% uh, of the time. I see. Okay, uh, so this solves the problem I was afraid about the event store, that it would start slowly after restart. And then uh, actually after benchmarking, I think like by uh, trying to write to the event store from multiple threads, I was getting almost 4,000 transactions per second. Oh. These were small messages, and uh, like I didn't do my own, like didn't write my own benchmarking tool. I was just using test client for the event store, mm-hmm. and so I might be slightly wrong. But the benchmark I was running, it's like when you have multiple threads. I think I was planning almost hundred at some point, and in each thread you have a process that takes a bunch of events, then tries to write it to the event store, waits for them for the write to finish, and then tries to write some more, tries to write some more, and I was writing like something like. 100,000 events. I see. And the throughput was 3,900 transactions per second. Mm-hmm. And that was actually much faster than you can get if writing to the blob storage. Because when you're writing to the blob storage, the page blob in a single thread, you can get only 125 writes per second. I see. From a small machine without, like, without even throttling. And event store gets a like, really nice performance because it batches writes from multiple threads. For example, imagine that you're an event store and you have like four write requests coming to you. Mm-hmm. So what event store will do is tell uh, like these guys to wait for a, li- a little bit, take all these four write requests, write them to the disk in one go, and then tell all four, okay, I'm done. So basically all threads are writing to the same event storage. So they're actually writing to the same physical file, mm-hmm. although they can be writing to different event streams. I see. Okay, and uh, actually this is possible because of the SEDA architecture, staged event-driven architecture, uh, which actually can be really nice and performant. And additional nice thing and feature that it gives to the event storage is that uh, the event storage will degrade gracefully if you have too much load. So basically it just will start slowing down instead of throwing up deadlocks. I see. 
when it's appropriate to jump into this topic, because I don't know if it is yet or not. But one thing we haven't really covered yet on the podcast is the whole synchronization between like a client and server or multiple servers. Like I, I still don't have a clear picture in my mind of if, if I was writing all these events to like five different places, how I would actually keep things in sync unless, and maybe that's only the multi-node version can do that or something. But I would imagine even with LOCAD, when we talked about doing like client, like a phone or something where it's writing local disconnected events and then you have a server that's got its own events and somehow you got to get those in sync. Like, how does that actually all magically work itself out? Oh, okay. In this case, it's rather simple, at least in this specific scenario. So if we have a situation where a client needs to work on some data remotely mm-hmm. in offline mode, uh, and although these cases can be relatively rare, and then we need to be to enable uh, like online syncing capability. Mm-hmm. So uh, what the client would do, it will have a local copy of uh, an event stream or mo- maybe multiple event streams stored somewhere in the local persistence. It okay. can be like a file or uh, some key value storage, it doesn't matter. So in the scenario, like if I was just using the, the code that's available for LOCAD CQRS, I would literally have like basically the same kind of copy of those libraries on the client that knows how to do the event store. And I would tell the client, you know, here's a copy of this event stream or file or whatever and go do what you need to do, right? I'm using the same tool. Uh, maybe I would even write something simpler or even keep everything in memory. Okay. Not sure now. Okay. Because I haven't played with these scenarios like uh, in real world okay. cases yet. Okay. So we're keeping a local versions of event source. Mm-hmm. And then when we, uh, like when we get uh, back the internet connectivity or connectivity to the uh, master store, which can be, for example, this Greg's event store, mm-hmm. we connect to that. And then we try to merge our changes in. And what does uh, that and look by, like? So basically we just ask the store like, to uh, tell us whether any changes, were there any commits since we synchronized uh, last time. Mm-hmm. And if there weren't any commits, we just push. Yep. If there were commits, then we pull these commits to local, and then we try to rebase these commits. We try to rebase our commits on top of the new commits in the master store. Okay, so that's when you literally would do like manual comparisons of like, let's rehydrate that object, see which properties change. If they don't conflict, go ahead and change it and move to the next one. Check And just keep doing that and see how far you can get before you have to ask the user to resolve it. Uh, actually, like this uh, conflict resolution, the merging rule can be even much simpler hmm. uh, because we can define it in terms of events. We can say that, for example, uh, events of different types, they never conflict with each other. Hmm. So, for example, if in remote storage we had, uh, for a customer aggregate, had a situation that payment was added, like uh, like maybe PayPal payment uh, was added to the customer balance, and his balance is now uh, 40 euros more. Mm-hmm. And on local version, had an event saying that customer name was changed. Right. So, basically, by looking, you can have a simple rule that events of different types never conflict. And so we'll basically just add our customer name changed on top of the payment added to the event storage on the master server. I see that. And so that's where um, having some granularity in what you're actually changing per atomic action could benefit you if you're syncing a lot. If You might want to actually break those events up to be very specific if, if your main use case was... I'm going to be offline like a lot of the time and I just want, I'm going to have like an event for almost every field, maybe not that crazy, but really break it up into things that aren't likely to conflict and then your sync story is a lot simpler. Yes, although if you go too crazy and just uh, write an event like, uh, and then something like field changed, field changed, field changed, as opposed to uh, customer address corrected and mm-hmm. customer uh, address changed. Then it will be actually harder to merge. I see. If you have like uh, atomic events that represent something in the real world, then you can de- uh, define merging rules and conflict rules in terms of these atomic events because you can tell that events like customer address changed and customer address corrected, they never conflict with each other unless they go in specific order. So, for example, if first event comes, customer event, uh, customer address changed, and then customer address corrected, well, actually, in no matter which order they come from. We can, we can say that uh, the latest change wins, mm-hmm. or maybe something else. Mm-hmm. But if we have two different customer address changed, like locally and remotely, if, we, if they change to absolutely the same address, then we just discard one of them. Mm-hmm. If you have two events that say a customer address changed, but one of the events points to address A and the other event points to address B, then we have, might have a problem. Mm-hmm. 
And in this case, master's version uh, will be the source of truth and will tell the user of local application, which was offline, to double-check his changes. Okay. Okay? Yep. And so in this case, the master store, which is remotely accessible, would be Greg's event storage. Mm-hmm. If we wanted to use Locat SecureS in this case, then we would actually need to spin Locat SecureS event storage on some specific server and actually code explicitly a remote gateway access to that. Mm. Because currently the event storage in Locat SecureS is not remotely callable. But the yeah. event store uh, naturally is. with it. It's already got that built in. Absolutely. And so in the case of the single-node event store, if you were going to do this offline scenario... Would you try to run this a copy of that node on the client as well, or would you create like a really simple way to do the event storage on the client and then connect to the server that's running the real event store? What's most likely what people would do? I'd say that running uh, event store locally on client, well, depending on the scenario, it might be a huge overkill. Okay. Um, for simple things, depending on which uh, environment you're running on, it may be worth just to use look at SecureS mm-hmm. event storage, like uh, writing to a file system. The reason we're able to mix and match this stuff is because as long as each implementation complies with the serialization message contracts, it doesn't matter who's storing them where, as long as when we smash them back together, they're in the same Absolutely. format. Okay. Yes, exactly. Okay, cool. Uh, additional nice things for Greg's event storage. For example, if we look at it not from the perspective of open source getting things done project, but from the perspective of a small startup that is trying to get some functionality out to the market really fast, Mm -hmm. is that if you're storing your events in this event storage and these events are serialized as JavaScript objects Mm -hmm. uh, in JSON format, Mm -hmm. then you don't even need to write your own projections engine. Like the stuff that we do, for example, in uh, in Look at SecureS in an extremely simple way with this atomic storage and event subscribers. Mm-hmm. Event handlers, because you can actually write projections as JavaScript and have them executed and play with them and have them running on the event store server, and you can actually like edit them. You can have ad hoc projections which are just uh, run in memory, or you can have something that is persisted, and then you can uh, query these projections through the uh, REST API. So that means that as we're writing to the event store, the the event store server itself will run our whatever projection code we've defined and can persist those to other blobs or keep them in memory, whatever we want? Well, I think it will persist them using its own storage, so not on blobs. Its own storage, which happens to be backed by blobs in Azure, right? Yeah. Yeah. Although I'm not sure... Well, I definitely know that the projections might have checkpoints uh, which will be persisted to the blobs, Uh, although I don't remember if the projections were actually persisted themselves or they were cached in memory. Hmm, Okay. I've been doing quite a lot of uh, digging into the event store source code, like into the setter architecture during this uh, and previous year because we were building uh, this data platform right? using like the concepts from the event store, and which is actually funny. So uh, I know quite a bit about how uh, like core of event store behaves internally, but uh, till recently I wasn't even that familiar with how it behaves from the user experience. Okay, and uh, one additional thing that I want to point out is that uh, the projections host in Locat SecureS, which we have, is actually an extremely simplified version of uh, any projection engine. Oh, okay. Uh, because it passively takes events uh, which are passed to it by, uh, by the infrastructure one by one, and it actually writes, like, uh, by default, you wire multiple projections to one event handler, which means that if uh, one of the handlers fails, uh, like the entire a batch of event handlers will be re- retried, and there are a lot of performance problems if you're running on Azure, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. And one of the approaches to speed this up is to use something like chasing or catch-up uh, event subscriptions, where you have an event subscription that's just basically a pointer on the event stream, and each event handler can uh, catch up with the latest events individually. And if you define your projection in such a way, then you can get much better performance and you can have separate projections. Mm-hmm. And that's the default way that, uh, how event storage does it. I see. Uh, and also, like, uh, the projections from Look at Securus, they can actually be converted to run on the event storage as well, like on Greg's event store. Because in, your, uh, like, uh, in the code, we can define a subscription to the event stream, and then the subscription will be receiving events really fast. 
So uh, in case of uh, Greg's event store, we can write projections and have them hosted on the server. In this case, the events have to be uh, serialized as JSON. Or we can uh, write them in our own code that connects to the server and receives new events as they are stored. Okay. Okay? So that was a quick overview of like why I wasn't initially for uh, using uh, Greg's event store for the project uh, that we're working on, on getting things done project. Uh, well, I think uh, additional concern I had was with about it being uh, really heavyweight for what it does for our purposes. Although within last, I think, four months, I became a lot more aware of the problems we have with a simplified event store in case of look at SecureS. <laughs> it will work nicely for the like client-side event store cache, but it will work, uh, and it works for uh, small and medium-sized server-side event stores. Mm -hmm. But when you try to get more out of it, it will have a lot of problems. Which isn't an issue for Greg's event store. Yes. So well, one of the uh, problems with uh, Look at SecureS event store is that it doesn't support batching. So you can't uh, write multiple events at once. Which means that if you have to write 10,000 events, which belong to different event streams, you'll have to write them separately. Like to write them to the blob one at a time. Yes, and this means that you'll have, in case of uh, Look at SecureS event store, less than 80 events per second stored. Okay. Because uh, this would require actually two round trips to the uh, Azure storage. Hmm. And that's quite limiting. And also, if you're writing a huge batch and it server fails and restarts in the middle of the process, you'll have to restart from the very beginning. And in case of Greg's event store, all events that are written in a batch, they uh, form a single transaction. And it can take like a few days to write a transaction. <laughs> and during that transaction write, basically other clients can be writing their own stuff. And the transaction will be committed only after you say that the transaction was committed. Hmm. And only afterwards it will show up for the other clients as well. One additional caveat of using this event storage, Greg's event storage uh, on Windows Azure, is that if we're going for a virtual machine scenario, then we might have a problem. Uh, like if you'd go for your own virtual machine on Windows Azure, you will be responsible for managing it. Right, for deploying right. new updates, for making sure that it's like uh, always the latest version, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, you're referring to the operating system on the VM. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. The ideal scenario would be actually to host event storage in a worker role. Yes. Is that possible? Well, with a certain coding, it's possible. Yeah, because right now, my understanding of the current approach with Locad SecureS and what you guys do, you guys are using all worker roles, right? Yes. Okay. So uh, basically, what we're doing is for quick development and non-important apps, we use virtual machines because it's so much easier to deploy there because like, you can uh, literally go into the machine, see uh, which files are sitting there, upload files, new version of the machine like through the FTP, etc., etc. In the VM approach where you're installing the operating system you know, through the gallery because it's really easy, in Azure, it's very similar to Amazon, I'm assuming, where you, you basically have a full machine there. You can have a scheduled job launch the single node.exe just like you would if it was at your house. No problem. Yes, okay. absolutely. The console fires up. You have a console window. You remote desktop into that VM, and it looks exactly like I would be running it at my house. That's the infrastructure as a service VM way. Absolutely. Okay. Although one important difference between VM on a cloud and local uh, computer is that VM on the cloud will always be much slower, sure. especially if you're doing something really smart and efficient with the disk. So uh, if you have event store chunking some events on your laptop, for example, it can do uh, 10,000, 20,000 events per second. Mm -hmm. Then if you try to do the same with the uh, cloud version, even if it likes to write to the local transient disk, I'd expect it to be much slower. Mm -hmm. Or at least on par, but not much faster. Even if you go for the fastest virtual machine, for example, with the SSD drive. Right. That's something possible with uh, on Amazon. Uh, the reason being is that cloud environment is virtualized. Yep. So your TCP, uh, your network stack is virtualized. Your writes to the hardware, they have to go through this uh, virtual host controller and through all the, like a lot of soft software before it hits the hardware. Mm-hmm. And as we've learned from the Inception movie, uh, that if you run a virtual machine inside a virtual machine inside a virtual machine, everything will be uh, pretty slow. Yes. Now, you obviously, because you guys do a lot of the worker role stuff, like I thought, you know, and, and this is two-year-old information that I looked at messing around with it, but I thought there was a way where you, you could sort of launch EXEs in a worker role or like how much work 
would we literally just launch the exe in a worker role with some configuration or do you have to take the source code of event store and sort of reshape it to make it work right in a worker role uh, the dump scenario would be actually to bundle the entire event store exe mm-hmm. uh, into the worker role mm-hmm. so worker role is a special package that gets uh, managed and deployed by windows azure fabric right which means that uh, if the fabric decides that it needs to upgrade the virt- like the specific machine Mm-hmm. Uh, it will uh, shut down the machine, it will do its stuff, and maybe it will start a new machine somewhere else, and it will take the package and then wrap it and deploy it there mm-hmm. into manage. So, like, worker roles are like isolated containers. Mm-hmm. And if we were to host event store in a dumb way, we would just include into this package a zip file with the event storage. And then when this package starts, it will unzip the event store to some local directory. Then it will uh, be configured to map to load a specific uh, virtual drive. And then it will start the event storage telling, okay, now you use this virtual drive as your data store location and everything lives happily ever after. That's how, for example, uh, Mongo and other databases or non.NET tools can be run on Windows Asia. You okay. just bundle the, the executable and you manage it externally. Okay, so the worker role still gives the ability to launch like a console app. You just have to take care of the, its uh, installation, rebuild, and launch, and maintenance uh, automatically when the VM gets recycled and stuff like that. Yes, okay. although I would probably do something slightly smarter. Mm-hmm. And instead of launching Event Store as a console remote process and then trying to monitor this remote process mm-hmm. without actually knowing exactly what happens inside, I would uh, launch, uh, like I would wire the Event Store into the worker role itself. So instead of the worker role starting new console, the worker role will be loading event storage and it will be the event storage host. I see. The advantage of that being that we get a little bit more flexibility and the event store will behave nicely with the Windows Azure. Yes. Uh, for example, uh, Windows Azure can request a shutdown. So we either, if we have, if we host event storage within the worker role natively, then we can actually, when we get this request to shut down, and Windows Azure will shut down. It's not a request uh, sometimes. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, like it's information. Yeah. We can actually gracefully quickly shut down our event storage and then uh, let the machine go down and then quickly come back up somewhere else. I see. And second thing being is that we will not need to manage the event store installation inside to do this technique, you would take the event store source code and sort of build a super worker role out of it or something? Yes. Okay. Well, either refer to the worker role or just uh, load, like uh, create a new worker role project and link the executable as a library and then add a wrapping to that. Basically, just provide a different entry point to the process other than uh, like launch from the operating system. Right, right. Yeah, you're, you're hiding that executable console interface with however you're going to implement it so that it's, it's sort of built in as a native worker role. Absolutely, absolutely. Cool. And right. that's how we tend to be running things at LowCAD. Mm-hmm. And that uh, might require a little bit more effort. But in the end, it creates systems that are like maintenance-free almost. Yeah, yeah. Because I could, I could sleep Azure. at night because I'm actually using the cloud as intended. I'm not like hacking it together and faking myself into thinking. <laughs> you know, I mean, I realize it probably is fine, but yes, I, I like that approach you're describing there because I, I feel like I've, I've joined the cloud revolution and I'm doing it the, quote, native right way. <laughs> well, uh, basically, it's uh, as it is with, uh, for example, almost any Microsoft software. Uh, when you're using the software, there is like kind of the right way and there is uh, maybe some other way that you think it is, uh, is the proper way. <laughs> so if you do, uh, try to use the software or the tool in your own way, you are going to get uh, some problems and some conflicts, and you will be unhappy with what this tool does. Mm-hmm. But if you're using the tool the way it was intended to, first of all, uh, you would get expected outcomes, and second, you can be assured that Microsoft Teams will be working to make this happy path more efficient and more simple for you. So uh other way of saying that is you know, like not try to hack with Microsoft tools. If, uh, like even if you think that they're doing something wrong, maybe that's not the right tool. But if you use it the way they are supposed to, then uh, you get some, some really nice uh, experience and a lot of things will be handled for you. That makes sense. So let's say we use a single node. We've made it a native worker role. It's happy with Azure. We're playing nice with the Microsoft happy path. 
and for whatever reason we decide we, we need seven worker roles running that event store like is that not even possible or like how do you actually add more event store nodes if you needed to okay uh, the question being are we talking about the free version or the commercial version free version okay so if we have a situation where we need to well first of all to scale up so if we are running a free version and suddenly the traffic spikes then we get more customers and we discover that we need more capabilities but we can't afford the commercial version yet so mm-hmm. we just ask Windows Azure to redeploy the same work role, but with a bigger size. I see. So we don't even need to manage with VM. We need don't. I think although VM can be reimaged in Windows Azure these days as well. Uh, well, it doesn't matter. So we can go really large, up to the 32 or maybe even more gigabytes of RAM. So and the vertical scalability story with the single node, as as far as we know, that single node um, install. If you throw more horsepower and RAM at it, it, that actually will let it scale. There's no like restriction or problem with that. It would actually it should perform better. Yes, because Event Store uses available memory for caching, which ah, okay. to speed up access. Okay, uh, if we want to have more worker instances, well, the na- naive way is to just tell uh, Windows Azure to have more worker instances. However, uh, like with single node, it will not work nicely. Yeah, cause then because then we literally have each one writing its own island of data, right? Yeah, and when you will be writing to the cluster, you will not actually know exactly to which one you're writing. <laughs> so uh, you'll get a really messed up experience where, uh, where for example, uh, you write an event to the storage, and then when you uh, pull the storage, the event is not there. Simply because you written to the event storage A, and then uh, when you're trying to read, you're reading from the event storage B, which is empty. Or I guess you could, depending on how your system's designed, like, I mean, it's probably, we're talking about hacks at this point. I'm, I'm sure that the right business decision for most of the answers are going to be you scale vertically as much as you can to use Event Store the right way and use it on its happy path so life's good. If you want to horizontally scale, you buy the multi-node version and life is good. But if you were going to be foolish and try to hack this, I guess you could try to scale horizontally or if your domain warranted it, you could like almost distribute the load and say, well... This single node is starting to fall down because I have too many customers, but I could I can partition my customers onto their own nodes. They don't need to know about each other, something like that. Absolutely. So basically there is a middle ground between scaling up and going for the commercial version, mm-hmm. which is like you partition your system. Mm-hmm. In your code, you write that you, uh, like aggregates of this type are stored on this server. Mm-hmm. Aggregates uh, maybe of this type are stored on this server. Uh, like, uh, so aggregates belonging to different contexts will be stored on different server. If you try to partition aggregates of the same type between multiple machines, for example, customers 1, 2, 3 will be stored on server A, and customers uh, 4, 5, 6 will be stored on server B, then you might have a problem that doing projections will be tricky. I see. So it's the aggregate. Keeping the aggregate boundaries consistent on, on an event store instance is, is the wise thing to do if you're going to try to mess with that. Or even uh, just keeping all data of a single uh, system, of a single context, on one, uh, like, uh, one, one node in a free open source version. Okay. But I would think that if you get so much data that a single event store is overloaded, then you probably have a lot of, a lot of customers coming, and it might be worth to get a multi-node version. And if I'm not mistaken, there is an event store Blaze coming. Event store Blaze is a version of uh, event storage cluster, where your data is partitioned between multiple machines internally. Hmm. So it gets you uh, like a single high availability event storage is where all data is replicated to every single machine. So each machine is an exact replica. So uh, Event Store Blaze, uh, it's a cluster of highly available nodes where the data is partitioned between nodes inside the cluster automatically. Hmm. And that's different from the current multi-node version, how? Uh, well, the current multi-node version, it's a high availability node. When we're talking about the Blaze, it's essentially a cluster of high availability clusters. Oh, okay. <laughs> high availability, like cluster version, is for paranoid people. <laughs> a cluster of clusters is for people who need high scaling and who are paranoid. Yes, okay. <laughs> and uh, one actually nice way of going the work role on Windows Azure is that if you get the cluster version of event storage, uh, it's much easier even to mount it to the uh, work role than using the single node version because like there is less uh, plumbing. And you can actually uh, configure your reliability and replication 
by just changing the number of uh, worker role instances that are running. Oh, okay. You're just like normal Azure scaling, like uh, click up, yeah. add five instances, whatever. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay, sweet. Okay, I have one a few questions or potential questions about the event store performance. Okay, let's go for it. One question being is like, what's the fetching performance of event store? Like, uh, for example, when you're loading an aggregate, mm-hmm. how is this performance of uh, loading an aggregate from Greg's event store is different uh, to the performance of loading the aggregate from Locat Securus? Mm-hmm. I'd say Locat Securus version would be marginally faster because it has like under small loads. Uh, because you have like events cached in memory in the serialized form, so it's like as buffers of data. And when you're reading, you just you, you can read them really fast because there are no locks. You'll just need to deserialize them and fit the aggregate. However, as soon as you start getting into the loads, uh, like high load scenarios, or when you need to have event store client code sitting on multiple machines, then you get into the situation where a look at SecureS uh, will be kind of deadlocked because there are only a few locks and they are not fine grained, and the code will be just sitting there waiting for the another process to release a lock. Hmm. Well, granted, there are like uh, I think it's a reader write lock slim, but it's still the same entire event storage. Uh, in case of uh, Greg's event storage, it will handle the load more gracefully simply because like there are really fine grained locks. Different event streams are locked individually, meaning that Locket SecureS will be faster on loading aggregates from under small loads, but as the load increases, Greg's event store will handle it everything better. And besides, there is better and much easier to support for snapshots. It's easier to, easier to implement them. And I think, if I'm mistaken, Eves uh, has already started working on open source version of aggregate event sourcing foundation that provides easier implementation of snapshots. Cool. And all the stuff that we have been coding in getting things done, in uh, previous being the worst episodes, mm-hmm. all the stuff aggregates with event sourcing, the most important part is that code you wrote that captures the, the business logic is always quite simple to be ported from one technological implementation, for example, from Allocate Securus to Greg's event storage or Jonathan Alvarez's event storage. Because the contact surface, like the service contract, is really small. Right. So, like, porting the code that you spend so much time working on, it's relatively simple. That's good to know. Okay, uh, one additional side story is with projections that were coded in Locat Secure's world. Uh, running them in against Greg's event store might require a special adapter. Well, a relatively small one. Although, like, we're established that the projections are thrown away and disposable and we don't care much about rewriting them anyway. Right. Yeah, it's just work that has to be done. Or just, uh, I think... Well, I haven't uh, done that yet, but it should be possible to write a relatively simple adapter that just plugs uh, like projections written in old local security way into Greg's event storage. Okay, cool. I remembered the the thing I was going to ask you because I think uh, when you guys were talking on the distributed podcast and in other just general distributed system discussions, usually when people are talking about the fundamental pieces of a distributed system, you hear about messaging and, and stuff like that, but usually some kind of queuing mechanism comes up. So, you know, in 2009 or 10 or whenever it was when I first saw Microsoft announce uh, Azure at the PDC and they were talking about the core components of their tables and blobs and their queues that I think at that time and maybe still now they could they could Ooh. only handle like 500 messages per second in the queue or something like that. But I had always assumed that one of the ways that you're going to scale this stuff is that you could scale up this uh, load balance queue and have millions of clients writing you know, requests into the queues. And that's how the event storage or whatever behind it was able to keep up because it would just pull new messages as it needed. But we might be doing it. I just may not be realizing. But let's say with using the event store and what we're planning on doing, let's say we became extremely successful and we had like millions of phones requesting stuff from our server constantly. Like, What, if anything, do we put in front of this event store so that it doesn't die? Actually, no. Even if you have millions of customers in the system, and the customers say he pings the system 100 times a day, mm-hmm. a single event storage will still be ha- able to handle the load, I think. Uh, well, even without any additional configuration. Uh, and the event storage, it doesn't look like a queue. Like uh, from the interface point, it uh, provides a usual REST API interface, HTTP REST interface, and it also has high-performance TCP interface. And if we actually need to scale out like the reading part, we can just get a few dead simple machines with reverse proxy on top of them. 
And then we will just push all requests to the event storage for this reverse process. And this will drastically uh, reduce the load on the event storage for reading. Oh, for simply reading, be- okay. Yes, simply because event storage, like the way it's designed, since it's immutable, well, it's the immutable data, and only data is its, at its core. Like the same immutable and only data can be cached really efficiently by the internet infrastructure, uh, which means that if you put uh, the event storage somewhere out there, and the same version of the event stream will be requested from the event storage only once. Afterwards, it will be uh, always cached. I see. And it will not even, like this read request will not even touch the event storage. So with the reverse proxy story, you're literally talking about, hey, uh, just by default, we don't need to think about this too much if if we don't have this problem. It, it'll just work because that one server that has the event store on it is really going to be handling the commands and the queries, if you will, however you want to determine that. But yeah. they're doing the reads and the writes. But the way we could scale is do the separation like CQRS says, commands on one and queries on the other. And the, the queries would be redirected to that proxy to say like that thing over there is going to give you your answer with the views. And uh, this uh, thing over here is only writing. No, no, even simpler. Put a bunch of reverse proxies in front of the event storage and just make sure that all requests to the event storage uh, go for this reverse proxy. That's it. Then what's that reverse proxy doing? So uh, in, in case of reverse proxy, basically you, you just get your requests cached if they're cacheable. Oh, oh, okay. I see. Okay. If the cache has some information that event storage has, so basically it serves, it serves as a cache. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, that, that was your whole point about the caching, was that that whole layer above it can be more efficient because it, this customer is asking for a copy of the latest customer contact address list. It hasn't changed, so go ahead. We know the answer. I don't need to bother the event store for that question. Yes. So, for example, you get a request. Give me the latest event stream for this aggregate. So uh, the request, what is the version of the event stream? It will go quickly to the event store and will come quickly back up. Mm-hmm. And then the request, give me all events up to this version, it will not even hit the event storage. It will be returned from the cache. I see. Okay. Or maybe it will not even go to the reverse proxy. Maybe it will be cached by your operating system because it's the same plain HTTP request. I see. Okay. Okay, okay cool. Uh, so then additional uh, things that, for example, how would we store ideally messages in the event storage? Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, there are options being JSON format or non-JSON format like Prodabop. Mm-hmm. So if you have an existing project uh, in Locket SecureS or some other kind of framework and you want to migrate to, to the Greg's, uh, to Greg's event storage, then the path of least resistance would be to use whatever message serialization format you're already using and then migrate to JSON to gain additional benefits, like server-hosted projections. However, uh, if you're building a new project, then just go for the JSON. Because those benefits you're going to get on the projection side will likely outweigh the performance boost you'll get from using Protobuf or something. Yes, and also basically you'll get a lot of additional things for free. Okay. Uh, you'll get additional flexibility. You'll have more time to spend experimenting with projections, to, to spend experimenting with your business logic, as opposed to like doing some other way. <laughs> Got it. And if needed, you can always optimize down to the Protobuf later. Right. Or even just do custom serialization stuff. Well, one of the, uh, for example, benefits is if you store messages in JSON format, then you can inspect event streams and write ad hoc projections directly from the event store UI. Basically, they need JSON format for their projection engine, which actually runs in Google V8, oh. JavaScript engine. Uh, currently, let's uh, just assume that serialization is not really important. <laughs> yeah. Well, the performance is not important. Don't worry about it, basically, for right now. <laughs> well, actually, or uh, just assume that we're doing a different optimization road where if we don't have many customers in the business, uh, they don't, we don't care about the performance. Right. If we have many customers uh, in our business to the point that they create a lot of load to slow down this part of the infrastructure, then we can choose between either spending maybe 20 hours optimizing the code and then migrating the system to the new code or just get a bigger server. Yeah. Sometimes it's cheaper and it's less risky. Yeah, hit the up arrow in the uh, Azure portal, get a more expensive monthly fee and be done with it. Or uh, even if that doesn't work, then just uh, buy the license commercially and not worry about it and keep using JSON or whatever. uh, Yeah, and actually if you really need uh, to get the most performance out of the hardware for your bug, then the solution is actually to move out of the cloud. Because the cloud virtual machines are extremely slow. If you want to have something running really fast, then it's better to, to build your own server, co it somewhere, 
and have your uh, software running as close to the hardware as possible without any virtualization of a network stack with the storage input output etc cetera, etc cetera. if you got to the point where you need that local hardware performance i think you could just buy the the hardware appliance from greg or from the event oh, store oh uh, yes yeah. you're correct okay cool. uh, and then just a few more things so we're talking about the queues so if we were to continue writing, getting things done project with uh, using Greg's event storage, mm-hmm. so uh, the only change would be the implementation behind I event storage interface. Okay. And the rest, like the queues, they can stay the same. What queues? Like the, uh, the queues that we're using for uh, in local SQRS for sending messages. Like what is it? I don't even remember. Like in GTD, like I don't remember something. Remember. Uh, in getting things done, we don't have queues yet. Okay, good. I was like, I don't remember seeing that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. But LOCAD CQRS has it? Or? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So basically, uh, we send commands to the server by putting commands to the cloud queue. And oh. then the server gets these commands by pulling the endpoint of the cloud queue. I see. Okay. So, and you're using blobs for your queuing. You're not really using their queue product, right? Uh, no, uh, we're using queues. Yeah, we're using Azure storage queues. We're not using uh, Azure service bus. Okay. So, queues are a separate thing. Mm-hmm. They can be used like for load balancing commands for uh, queuing up them somewhere. They're like queues are separate from the event storage. Right. These are different concerns. Yep, right. And so if we uh, found out that we actually need queuing, server-side queuing capabilities, then we'd start by, on Azure, then we'd start by using queue adapters from Locat SecureS, adapters for Windows Azure storage queues. And if we found out that we actually have sent so many messages around that uh, Windows Azure queues are stuck, they're throttled, they're slow, then on the same machine that hosts event storage for a startup, we'll start a RabbitMQ instance. If we need more performance, we'll start multiple RabbitMQ instances. <laughs> You've already thought through all the different hacks you could go through to make this thing work just fine. Yep. The, now, the um, with the queues, though, when we were talking earlier about the whole, you could throw a reverse proxy layer in front of the event store. Like In this overall architecture, if you actually had reverse proxies and queues, like where do the queues fit in in that picture? Okay, so reverse proxy is a way to uh, kind of get better performance out of uh, existing event storage installation. Mm-hmm. Queues could be used, for example, if you have a business where you're still using single-node event storage, and the business, for example, is about sending social messages. And you want to be able to upgrade server or to do something with the server or to allow server being down without customers even noticing that. Oh, okay. So we are still using queues as I would have normally envisioned them. Take some back-end stuff down and queue up that work to be done. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, okay, I got it. All right, sweet. Uh, and, and also, so, uh, for example, the queues can be used uh, in actually service stack way where a client would uh, talk to the server and server, if it knows that the event storage is down, it will put the command into the queue to be resent to it later, or if the server is up and it's responding, then it will execute the command against, like, will execute changes against the event store immediately. I see. Okay? So basically we're build, uh, adding, like, this gradual degradation feature into the system where under load, it doesn't kill, it doesn't freeze everything, but it just slows down maybe a little bit. Makes sense. Okay, and so uh, one more thing. So in Locat SecureS, we use queues to send commands, to execute commands on the server, and to send events to all the event subscribers. So actually, instead of passing the event to the projection directly, we put the event to the queue, and then the projection host picks the event from the queue and does something with that. Right. In case of event storage, we don't need, for example, a queues to pass events to the projections, uh, because in this case, event storage acts as a message delivery mechanism. It has its own messaging capability. So it does have a messaging capability, perfect. It has event subscription capability. Oh, okay. So it's something specific to the events. I wouldn't advise it to use for delivering commands. Got it. So yeah, we're still use queues for the commands, but you would use the event store ability to let you subscribe to its event feeds natively. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, cool. Well, we are running a little long, <laughs> so uh, we should probably wrap up with... Um, now that we know we're we're going to probably get on the road of trying the event store out on Azure and, and with the GTD stuff, what's our next step to start actually implementing this into GTD? Like, what do you think we're going to do next with that? Uh, actually, the next step would be to write a quick code, a uh, quick adapter for Greg's event storage, and then tr- just see how console behaves on that event storage. 
And then actually that would simplify another scenario where we try running multiple consoles against the same event storage. Hmm. See what happens. <laughs> yeah. That sounds awesome. Anything else we want to say about Event Store before we wrap this uh, extended edition up? <laughs> uh, I'd say that's uh, pretty much it. So basically, it's a good product for the startups because it uh, gets you like a lot of capabilities if you're uh, using event sourcing for free. And the uh, single node version, it's really good. And a lot of people might be afraid of using that in production, although the same people may be okay for using a single node SQL Server database in production. Right. Although SQL Server might be less reliable than event storage, because event storage is being much more stupid with persistence than SQL Server. SQL Server can overwrite uh, like the data on the disk, it can try to refragment, it can try to optimize. In case of the event storage, like the data sits as immutable, and so there is a much less uh, chance of uh, messing up. Although, if I'm mistaken, there was a capability being added where you can ask event storage to do scavenging. It means that you can tell event storage that you think it has too much empty space sitting in deleted event streams, and it can try to recompact that. Oh. But it, it will be breaking this immutability per your request. And what did you call that? Scavenging. Oh, scavenging. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Uh, well, I guess I will say what I always say, and that is uh, leave your comments and questions. I know we still have a lot of questions that we didn't get to. We might actually need to just – it might be easier to just do an, an episode of uh, where we look at all the backlogs of questions sitting on the website that we haven't had a chance to get to in the last couple months and see if, see if we can pull some out there that are relevant and maybe just crank through those questions or something. But So we know those questions are out there, and that's at beingtheworst.com. So leave your questions and comments there. We are at being the worst, and I think that'll do it, man. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, and actually, uh, I think that's a really good idea to get the next episode to answering questions. Cool. Let's plan on that. We'll we'll get doing that. I'll uh, I'll go back to the episode one and look around and see if because actually there were some people that um, started with us. They started at the beginning recently, and there were some questions on the basics and stuff. So I'll go back to episode one, mine those questions out, summarize them a little bit, and get them ready for us. And we'll just uh, hit Renat with the firing squad of questions and hopefully try to catch up for you guys. So until next time, we'll talk to you later. Okay, sounds good. Uh, take care, guys. Bye. Bye.